time for Legally Speaking, joined by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Some really interesting stories in the news at the moment, including the American discourse about a leaked draft decision by the majority of the court regarding the Roe v. Wade case. Now, just about everybody's heard the term Roe v. Wade. They probably know it has something to do with abortion, but I actually had no idea that it had been argued on the 14th Amendment and how that has a due process clause and it talks about rights not uh, actually in the Constitution that need to be deeply rooted in the history and tradition of the nation. Canada doesn't actually do things that way, yet we have our own set of laws, or perhaps we don't have laws, even though we uh, probably should, on abortion. How do things work here? Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I must say that uh, leaked decision has uh, caused uh, much uh, discussion and sort of consternation in Canada about exactly that. What is the state of the law here, and how did we get here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, the, the history of it is uh, during the um, 18th and early 19th century, uh, prior to Confederation, uh, abortion was generally legal uh, in the colonies. Uh, there was a, an act, uh, a British act, which I must say is a great name, although maybe the outcome wasn't uh, ideal, called the Malicious Shooting or Stabbing Act of 1803. Ah, uh, yes. Act. You, don't, yep. you don't want to have a malicious <laughs> stabbing, really. <laughs> um uh, and uh, the, that act uh, made it, uh, interestingly, a um, attempting to perform an abortion post-quickening, so like after 15 to 20 weeks of pregnancy, became a death penalty offense. Interesting. Uh, which is an interesting state of affairs, uh, I, I suppose, given the uh, modern language of pro-life. It's where you perform an abortion, we will kill you. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, in Canada then, uh, the history of it is that uh, a couple of years after Confederation in 1869, the criminal code was amended to essentially criminalize the performing of an abortion. Uh, and so the law stood for 100 years until 1969. Um, and then in 1969, uh, Trudeau Sr. Uh, and company uh, amended the criminal code to permit um, abortions, but only if a, a woman's uh, life or health was in danger. Uh, and then that had to be confirmed by a committee of three or more doctors. Uh, when, how that actually played out varied all across the country because the concept of woman's health wasn't defined. Hmm. Uh, and so it could be mental health or physical health, and uh, the availability of abortion uh, services across Canada was all over the map, but it required a committee of doctors to certify that the woman's health or um, life was in danger. Uh, and uh, then came along Dr. Morgenthaler, who was an advocate for abortion and performed them openly. Um, and uh, he was charged criminally uh, with doing so, because you would do it without getting the uh, permission of a committee of doctors. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, he was charged and uh, he was acquitted three times by juries, wow. even though he just admitted, yes, I did this. Um, and that's an important thing to remember about the importance of the uh, jury system, right? The jury system brings a, a community value uh, to uh, decisions in criminal cases that may be quite different from what the text of the law would be, right? Because you had cases where it was very clear what he was doing was in breach of the criminal code. Uh -huh. There would be a trial and the jury would just say not guilty. 
Um, yeah, I suppose that is a problem. Give, yeah. Juries don't have to give reasons for their decision. They just make a decision. Hmm. And part of that brings that. And, and there's a long history of that in our legal tradition of juries um, tempering uh, what might be required by the, the letter of the law. And so uh, what happened eventually is that in Quebec, that's where the jury trials occurred, uh, there was an appeal by the Crown. And it went to the Court of Appeal on one of those cases where the jury acquitted him. And the Court of Appeal there overturned the acquittal of the jury and substituted a conviction, uh, which is, think about that for a moment, uh, that was permitted uh, by the uh, criminal code in terms of the appeal provisions. A, a Court of Appeal could substitute a conviction, even though the jury had acquitted. Um, that, by the way, produced such public outrage that there was what was referred to as the Morgenthaler Amendment to the criminal code. And that amendment, um, amended section was now 686 of the criminal code that sets out powers of a court of appeal. And now, as a result of that amendment that flowed from the court of appeal convicting him after the jury had acquitted him, Dr. Morgenthaler, courts of appeal lost the ability to do that. Hmm. And so now, um, if the Crown appeals an acquittal by a jury arguing there was some legal error or other problem, the Court of Appeal could order a new trial, but they cannot simply convict the person, uh, despite the fact that the jury has acquitted somebody. Uh, and that's, again, I think, an important protection, right? Because, again, juries bring that community value to the justice system. You've got 12 random, ordinary people making a decision about something. And in some cases, juries may simply say, I'm not convicting somebody of that uh, offense. And so that's now the state of the law, and it's another thing that flowed from um, the uh, Dr. Morgenthaler's litigation over the years. He then got to the Supreme Court of Canada uh, on a, the first occasion, uh, challenging the constitutionality of the criminal code provisions as they existed post-1969, requiring this committee to decide if a woman could get an abortion. And the timing of that's interesting. Roe versus Wade, the U.S. Supreme Court case that found there was a constitutional right to abortions, depending on the timing of them, the states couldn't stop that. That decision was in 1973, and it's been the state of the law in the United States since then. Mm. Um, and what leaked out is a apparent decision or draft decision by the conservative judges on the U.S. Supreme Court looking to reverse that or planning to reverse it. But in Canada, <coughs> Dr. Morgenthaler got to the Supreme Court of Canada two years later in 1975, arguing that the Canadian law was also unconstitutional. And on his first effort to do that, he failed. Um, and that is because in 1975, we didn't have a charter in Canada. Uh, and so the arguments that his, he was able to make involved the issue of division of powers, mm -hmm. right? Because there's some authority the provinces have and some the federal government has. Yes. Um, and there was at that time a thing called the Bill of Rights was kind of a predecessor to the charter. Yeah. But it didn't It didn't work. It didn't succeed. The mm. Supreme Court of Canada found, no, this uh, is a valid exercise of criminal law power. And unlike in the United States, this is uh, lawful, the criminalization of abortion. Interesting. But... That wasn't the end of it, because, of course, we got a charter. Yeah. Uh, and he went back to the Supreme Court of Canada post-charter. Um, and in 1988, the Supreme Court of Canada found that the criminal code provisions which made uh, procuring an abortion um, a criminal offense 
to be unconstitutional and in violation of Section 7 of the Charter, uh, the security of the person, life, liberty, and security of the person provision of the Charter. Yes. And as a result, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the criminal code provisions against an abortion. Uh, and following that, there were two attempts by the uh, Conservative government led by Brian Mulroney at the time to recriminalize it. Uh, and there was an election where it was a central issue. And post-election, um, the conserv- federal Conservative Party, uh, in fact, passed legislation which would have recriminalized uh, performing an abortion where a woman's uh, health was not at risk. A- and it passed. It was Bill C-43. And that legislation passed, it was 1990, if I got that right, passed in the House of Commons. And then in the Senate, there was a tie vote because of, of course, liberal senators there. Uh, and the rules of the Senate are that when there's a tie vote, it doesn't pass. And so by that margin of tying in the Senate, that didn't become law. And there hasn't been legislation in the criminal code dealing with abortion ever since. And so it means that um, Canada is the only developed country in the world which has no federal legislation with respect to abortion. Uh, and it is simply left like any other medical service. Uh, it, there would be various rules and regulations that uh, you know medical associations might have uh, about about it. But yes. there is no provision in the criminal code, uh, no federal provision at all. And of course, you don't need some provision authorizing you to do something. That's not no. how the world works here. No, um, you don't need to go cup in hand to the government. You know, please, kind sir, may I go and do something? The state of affairs is, if it's not prohibited, you're free to do it. Yes. Uh, and so that's the state of affairs. And I should say there's, uh, you know, naturally, um, there's uh, much political talk about this coming decision on Roe versus Wade in the United States and talk about need to protect things and, and so on. But it's important to remember you don't need some law telling you that you're allowed to go and do something. That's not how our legal system operates. Mm. The state of affairs is there is nothing prohibiting it. There is no provision in the criminal code that stops you from doing that. And so it's not an offense. And so you can simply carry on. Um, And so you don't need to look to government for permission. Um, It is simply not an offense in Canada. We don't regulate it in that way. There are interesting provisions in the criminal code dealing with things like one of the things people talk about as a legal issue is, you know, when does life begin, right? There's an answer to that in the criminal code. We've defined it. Where? Um, and section 223 of the criminal code. No, I mean, where does it, it begin? <laughs> oh, good question. Well, here it is, at least legally in Canada. Yeah. It says a child becomes a human being within the meaning of this act when it has completely proceeded in a living state from the body of its mother, whether or not it has breathed, it has independent circulation, or the navel string is severed. And then it says, killing a child, the person commits homicide when he causes injury to a child before or during its birth, as a result of which the child dies after becoming a human being. Interesting. One of the implications of that is that if somebody, for example, attacks a pregnant woman, yeah. uh, causing injury to a, a fetus, and then the child is, uh, fetus is born and dies as a result of the injury suffered in the attack, it's a homicide. Uh, which is a very interesting state of affairs. That's the implication of that uh, section of the criminal code. So we have, uh, at least in a legal sense in Canada, 
defined that uh, for the purpose of determining uh, when somebody might be guilty of uh, committing a homicide um, if they were to cause injury to a fetus that, who was late, which is later born, and there's defined there, uh, and then uh, there's a, a death resulting from the assault. Uh, but we do not uh, have any provision in the criminal code any longer dealing with abortion. And again, people are free to do what isn't prohibited. And so you don't need to look to government uh, for some permission uh, to do what you are permitted to do. And there we have it, the state of the law here in Canada. We'll take a quick break. Legally speaking, we'll continue in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defence Lawyers. Legally Speaking continues here on CFAX 1070, joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I note that Teal Seal pro- or Teal Cedar Products, I should say, is back in the news, suggesting that there's something involving protesting. Michael, what's the story? Yes, indeed. And uh, what's going on at the moment is that there's a uh, long list of people who have been charged with criminal contempt for allegedly breaching uh, the injunction with respect to uh, blocking uh, logging. Uh, Uh, And so those cases are going ahead uh, up in Nanaimo. Uh, And one of them, interestingly, resulted in an acquittal uh, just uh, a few days ago. Hmm. Uh, And uh, reading that, it was an interesting uh, uh, lesson in sort of what can go wrong potentially in the uh, enforcement and prosecution of uh, injunctions. What happened? Um, So what happened is that uh, the injunction, of course, was issued. But uh, and there's this individual who is charged with breaching it. Uh, but to get a conviction for a criminal contempt, you you need to show first of all that the person was aware of the injunction. Right? Mm-hmm. We don't convict people of doing things that they don't know is not are not permitted. Mm-hmm. And then you have to prove that they actually breached it. Uh, and so one of the issues that arose was trying to prove did this particular person have knowledge of the injunction? Um, and The Crown tried to argue that, well, look, the injunction is posted all over social media. Uh, But the judge said, well, I I don't have any evidence that this particular accused was on social media or read the injunction on social media, so that's not going to do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, The injunction apparently wasn't handed out or posted in some way for this person. Uh, The evidence was that the police had developed a script, which they were reading to people, um, and the script didn't unfortunately mirror all of the elements of what the injunction actually said. The script that the RCMP had come up with uh, used language telling people about things like they couldn't blockade or blocking the road wasn't permitted. Mm. There were other things included in the injunction, but the script didn't include everything. Mm. And so the evidence was, and it was on videotape, yeah. uh, this particular individual uh, was uh, had a drum and was <clears throat> banging the drum while the police were reading this uh, summary, right? Talking about you can't you can't blockade, no blockading, um, and the individual is banging the drum, and then on the video walks across the road. Right, this person's not like strapped to the road; they haven't no. crazy glued themselves down. They're banging a drum. They walk across the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, after walking across the road, they say to the police, "You are going to have to arrest us before you walk through us." So they didn't say that. Uh, but then the person standing on the other side of the road, banging away on his drum, not on the road. Uh, and then the individual walks back across the road, still banging away on his drum. Uh, and 15 seconds after the police finish reading their script about you can't blockade, arrest him. Hmm. And so the, there are a couple of issues. One there, one problem the judge identified is, well, look, 
it may be that you weren't allowed to walk across the road. Maybe that impeded something that you might might have been contrary to the injunction, but yeah. that wasn't in the script. You told people you couldn't blockade. And second of all, if you get past that, which the judge couldn't get past, is walking across the road a blockade? <laughs> You've just crossed yeah. the road, banging a drum. Uh, and so in this case, uh, the uh, judge was not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the person had knowledge of the provisions of the injunction that might have prohibited walking across the road banging a drum. Uh, and what he was told was about blockading, uh, and it was unclear that walking across the road constituted blockading. Uh, and so he was found not guilty. Um, and so I guess there are a couple of possible future takeaways. One is that it might be a good idea to hand out the actual injunction rather than summarizing it. Uh, but we should also bear in mind, and this was canvassed when this injunction was put in place, mm-hmm. some of the things that the injunction would prohibit, like blocking a road, yeah. right, to stop people from, you know, doing what they have a right to do, go yeah. down the road and work, yeah. is already a criminal offense. Yeah. Uh, and you don't need to prove the person had knowledge of the criminal code. We're all imbued from a legal okay. perspective with knowledge of the criminal code. So I was curious about company, that. Okay, so if it's an injunction, the they road. need to know, but if it's the criminal code, they don't. Okay, I understand. Correct. Okay. So if you're if somebody crazy glues themselves to the Trans-Canada Highway, right? Yeah. You don't need to prove that they had knowledge of the section of the criminal code that prohibits that. Right? Okay. But if you're trying to prove that they breached a specific injunction, you need to show they knew about the terms of the injunction. So like you gave it to them or they had a copy of it or something. Yeah. Uh, but if all you have is, well, this was posted on social media and I read you a summary while you were banging your drum, that may not get there. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, it's so, just the drum. It's just such a comedy act. It's just, yeah. Now the judge also specified the rate at which he was banging the drum. It was one or two beats per second, I think. So he was really going to town on the drum. Uh, but uh, <laughs> As the tension is, so, rises, bump, 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 bump. So anyway, that, that was the outcome, at least of one of the cases, <sighs> and those prosecutions carry on uh, one after the next. So a couple of takeaways there. We talk about credibility often in politics and in media, but it has a very specific meaning in the legal world. This next story touches on that. It sure does. Uh, And this arises frequently in uh, criminal prosecutions because with some frequency, criminal cases uh, are based on uh, facts where there are only two possible witnesses to what went on, the accused and the complainant, right? Unlike TV shows, there isn't usually some DNA evidence that's going to prove what happened one way or the other, or a videotape of it. Although, I guess the videotape didn't help in that Teal Cedar Products case. No. Um, often, cases are based on a complainant saying, for example, um, you know, she hit me in the head, right? And the accused saying, I didn't do that, right? Yeah. Um, and so sometimes people think, well, how, how does this work? This just a she said, she said, or he said, she said. What, how, how is that supposed to be sorted out? And in ordinary life, often if somebody's, if you hear two stories, you would kind of pick one, right? Okay, yeah. well, let's hear what you have to say. What do you have to say? I don't believe you. I believe you, right? I prefer what you have to say. And that would be the legal test if you were suing somebody for money. Right. Probably would be good enough. But in a criminal case, you have to prove beyond all reasonable doubt somebody committed the offense. Hmm. And so there is a uh, method that judges are uh, directed to apply. Juries would be told to apply as well uh, when they're assessing credibility in a case where an accused person testifies to the effect of I'm innocent. (laughs) I didn't do it. I, I didn't hit her on the head. And the way that's to work, and it's a function of 
that concept of presumption of innocence and the need to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt is a judge needs to ask themselves, first of all, do you believe the person? Because if you believe the person when they say, I didn't hit her on the head, well, that's the end of the inquiry, right? That's much more than a reasonable doubt. Yeah. But if the judge doesn't believe the person, they then must ask themselves, might they be telling the truth, hmm. right? Because there can be a circumstance where you say, I'm not absolutely sure that person's telling me the truth, but I, I can't say otherwise, right? Their evidence was internally consistent, not contradicted by anything else. So maybe they were. And again, a judge has to acquit. And then it's only if the judge doesn't believe the person, isn't left with any doubt, you know, isn't even left with a doubt they might be telling the truth, would a judge then go on to assess, are they satisfied by evidence they do accept? Like, go then and analyze the evidence of the complainant. And there can be circumstances where a judge listens to the accused and says, I utterly reject what you have to say. It's totally incredible. I put it aside. But then analyzes the evidence of the complainant and comes to a similar conclusion, Right. I just don't believe you either. I don't know what happened here. Hmm. And again, there'd be a requirement to acquit. And that all comes from a case called Regina versus WD. Uh But there was a new case that came out just a short time ago from the Supreme Court of Canada, where the judge reversed all of that and started their analysis by analyzing the evidence of the uh, complainant, rather than analyzing the evidence of the accused. Hmm. Right? And then that raised the issue of, well, look, has the judge now done exactly what uh, they're told not to do in case in that case, Regina versus WD. Yeah. And if you start your analysis, well, do you believe the complainant? And if you say, yes, I do, uh, and then you convict on that basis, you might say, well, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, what What have you just done there? Yeah. And so the Supreme Court of Canada was struggling with, you know, should the case be conviction be overturned because of what order the judge did it in? Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada said, well, that doesn't really conform with WD when you sort of read it in that way, but we have to presume that judges know what they're doing. And the judge in that case did refer to Regina versus WD. So even though the judge seemed to do it in a backwards way, yeah. uh, the Supreme Court of Canada was prepared to accept uh, that the judge did the proper analysis. Hmm. But for many people, the real important takeaway here is that criminal cases are not a matter of she said, she said, or he said, she said. Right. It's never just a who do I like better? No. Right. The analysis is always, is there any, uh, is there a reasonable doubt about it? And how we assess credibility uh, reflects that. And so that's the state of the law in Canada. Fascinating. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Second half of our second hour every Thursday here on CFAX 1070. I learn new things every week. Michael, thank you as always. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. See you next week. Bye now.